Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Forgotten Conservative. Uh, that was Jennifer Hudson singing the Star Spangled Banner before the 2009 Super Bowl. Uh, Pittsburgh and Arizona. Uh, I stumbled across it accidentally. Uh, not that I'm looking for Pittsburgh Steeler national anthems, but uh, wow, she did an amazing job. Before I go any further, I wanted to play something else. Uh, I'm going to play that now. Uh, because I think this is a somber moment in our nation's history. You've got the House and the Senate working on, in essence, uh, close to $10 trillion in more deficit spending. Now, you're going to hear the terms uh, roughly $3.5 trillion and... 1.5 trillion. The reason those numbers are off and deceptive is that they are banking on programs um, sunsetting, in essence, over or within 10 years. Uh, as we heard Ronald Reagan say numerous times, uh, the closest thing to eternity on earth or everlasting life on earth is a government program. Everybody knows once it's started, that's the end of it. It's, it's just, it goes on into perpetuity. Uh, that's why the RAINS Act uh, would be such a crucial piece of legislation. And basically what the RAINS Act says or does is that when you have these government agencies, EPA, uh, DOT, OSHA, you name it, any government bureaucracy, uh, Department of Education, so on and so forth, that when they set into motion these regulations, that if they are if they have a certain economic impact, that within a certain time frame. They have to be voted on, approved through legislation, i.e. House of Representatives, Senate, and signed into law by the president. Uh, obviously, that's not very popular in Washington. And it's not just with Democrats, it's Republicans too, which we're going to get into. Uh, but that leads me into this, because if really and truly, if either of these pieces of legislation passes, uh, I personally believe it'll have dire consequences for this nation, but God forbid if both of them pass, um, you, and this is not hyperbole, but I believe it could be the beginning of the end of this nation.
That, of course, is TAPS. Um, this version of it is played at Arlington National Cemetery um, on YouTube. Uh, there's actually two different uh, buglers playing. It gives you just a, a short intro into TAPS, the origins, and so forth. Um, originated July, I believe it was 1862, by the Union Army. Um, it doesn't say this in the video, but uh, General Daniel Butterfield, I think Butterfield, uh, if memory serves, but uh, he was a, a bugler, and he wanted to use bugle calls or did use bugle calls uh, to command his battalion. And so he was looking for something unique. Uh, there was a French tune that had been played up until that point. Um, but what he was running into is the common uh, bugler, the music, you could hear from other battalions. You could even hear from the Confederate Army. So he had been looking for something unique and uh, he got together with somebody else and, and they took a few bars. I'm not a musician. And so they rearranged it and come up with taps. Uh, I want to say within less than a year, uh, the South, the Confederate Army, had even adopted it. And probably within 10 years, uh, it was adopted by the U.S. military. Uh, of course, that we all hear it today, uh, played at military funerals, dignitary funerals, uh, etc. Probably the most prominent version, I wouldn't say version, but was... Uh, at the Kennedy funeral in 63. Uh, it was televised live around the world and uh, that kind of thrust it into Americana as, as well as worldwide, but it took on a more significant meaning with Americans. Uh, our president had just been assassinated we're in the throes of that chaos, so on and so forth. But I truly think that this is a, a moment that we're standing at. Uh, if, if you follow physics, which I, physics, I, I just, it's a nerdy obsession, but when you talk about black holes, they're, they have such enormous gravity and they're constantly, they're like a garbage compactor with the vacuum suction, okay? But there's a point as you approach a black hole and it's called the event horizon. And as you approach it, you reach that event horizon where there's no turning back. 
the equivalent would be if you were in a, a rapids, fast-moving stream, and let's say there's a waterfall, and you're swimming upstream. And so you're swimming right now at four miles an hour, and the water's moving at three miles an hour. So you're gaining ground. At some point, if that water becomes more rapid or faster, so to speak, than your ability to swim or as you tire, you can swim as furiously as you want to. But if you're swimming at four miles an hour, but the stream is moving at five miles an hour, you're going back, backwards. You're heading to the waterfall, to the precipice, into the abyss, into, as what Reagan said, a thousand years of darkness. That's where we stand. When I thought about this, and I've thought about this podcast for at least over a year, uh, doing something like this, writing, uh, trying to do my part to spread the word. Um, I don't, I don't want to sound, okay, let me re look for the right phraseology. I do want to sound the alarm, but uh, I certainly don't want to be conspiracy theorist. Uh, I don't want to uh, engage in language. It, it's certainly on a consistent basis that erodes credibility. Outside of the spending in these two bills, the spending alone should be enough for Republicans to do everything in their power to stop them. Now, the House has a three or four uh, member majority, the, the slimmest majority in over 100 years. Okay, think about this. The House of Representatives are the people's the citizens of this nation, the House of Representatives, represent the, the vast citizenry, the civilized, quote-unquote, society. There's a three, maybe four-member difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. So... If you, if you just look at that dynamic, half the country, literally, just about 50% of the country are Republicans and stand for uh, Republican values, big R Republican values, Republicanism. Half the country believe in democratic values 
this, these two pieces of legislation are as radical as anything certainly I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, this is the stuff that philosophers, Rousseau, Hegel, certainly Marx, Engel, that these guys could only fantasize about. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, John Dewey totally, you know, destroyed public education, government education. The, the, the stuff in these bills, it, it just, it not only in this is being used, Obama used it, 07, 08, uh, and throughout his presidency, uh, Joe Biden, who's never one to not plagiarize, good old PG, you know, plagiarizing Joe, um, he gloms onto it, transform America. Uh, that's what these, these two pieces of legislation does. So if, if you remove the spending, which back in the old days, I say the old days, you would have Republicans who would draw their lines, well, I'm fiscally conservative, socially liberal. Uh, you know, they tiptoe through the tulips or, along those lines. And that was a common theme um, coming out of the 80s through the 90s, early 2000s, uh, getting away from Reaganism, Reaganomics, um, the caricature that the media painted of Reagan, just like I'd mentioned in an earlier podcast, H.W. Uh, Bush, kinder, gentler conservatism, you know, it doesn't need to be quantified, okay? Conservatism works. Everywhere it's tried, it works. Uh, socialism, Marxism, communism. In contrast, everywhere it's been tried, it has failed. Not only has it failed, it is solely responsible for tens or hundreds of millions of deaths around the globe. Stalin estimates 10, 13 million people. Genocide in Ukraine. Hitler, 6, 7 million Jews. As many as 10 to 12 million worldwide. Venezuela, Chavez. I mean, C Castro, Cuba. Everywhere these forms of government have been tried, not only have they failed, but they have left millions of humans dead in its wake. 
And yet, in our government schools, it is preached, it is glorified, and it is shown to be not proven, but given the appearance of utopia. Not Thomas More's utopia, but the utopian form of government and or societal existence. Without capitalism, uh, free market enterprise, we would not be where we're at today. There's, there is no question. There are countries right now due to the coronavirus, lockdowns, quarantines, complete society, uh, just everybody that can working from home. But there are countries, third world countries around the globe that have accumulated nowhere near obviously the national debt that we have but guess what's happening to these smaller countries their debt is due they're not producing enough gdp just to service the debt in other words the interest on the debt When you think about going into debt as far as the country, well, first of all, let's, let's understand this. That if you ran a business the way that the federal government manages its books, if you ran a business that way, a corporation, you would be thrown in jail. If you was an individual done something like this, you would be Bernie Madoff. You, you would be accused of a Ponzi scheme. In the simplest terms, and this is oversimplifying, that's basically how the government treats money, our money. Uh, Medicare is nearly insolvent. Social Security is nearly insolvent. And what are, what are the Democrats, the far left, what are they trying to do? They're trying to bring more people on the rolls for both Social Security, whichever iteration, SSDI, SSI, uh, disability, you name it. They're trying to add more people to the rolls of Social Security they want to lower the age of eligibility for Medicare. And you can't do that. Oh, you can do it in the abstract. Yes, you can do that. But there's only enough money. But forget the money. Forget about the money. Let's just say... Uh, as basically as John Lennon hypothesized, uh, we're in a cashless society. 
okay, there's not enough doctors and specialists and hospitals and nurses and equipment to service all of those people at any given moment. So when what ends up happening? The, the health care gets rationed. The prescriptions, the drugs, it all gets rationed. And then you end up with a bunch of pencil pushers in a faraway land making a decision on your eligibility to receive health care. Oh, but you have free insurance. Your insurance is free. You're not paying for your insurance. You're just not eligible to receive the benefits. That's what happens. And you can look at Canada. You can look at UK. Hell, go, go over to, to England and make somebody laugh and look at their friggin' teeth. No offense. But that's what happens when you have universal health care that's covered by the government and, and you're paying next to nothing. Not to mention the, the doctor or the nurse or whomever the practitioner is that's went to school, probably incurred hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt and has to work for 10 years, 15 years before they're even in a position where they're even comfortable paying back these student loans, and here you are, just some Joe Schmo off the street, think that you have the right to use that person's service. It's, it's, it's okay for you to expect to eat from that person's sweat and toil. It is you, these Democrats have made it appear that it is your right, your human, God-given right to take time and intellectual property from that doctor who has done everything he can selflessly to learn a craft. And it doesn't matter whether it's a doctor, it's anything. Whether you're uh, an electrician, uh, HVAC, no matter what you do in life. You struggle, you fight, you work, you toil every single day to get where you're at. Nobody 
has the carte blanche right to expect your services for free. That would be like your boss or your company coming to you and saying, hey, look, we need you to do what you're doing for free. It's absurd. The, the, the mere thought is absurd. But when you talk about free health care for all, universal health care, in essence, that's what the government is doing. They are telling the unmotivated person that you have the right to this person's intellectual property anytime you want it. And that person does not have the right to say no. You take away the debt from these bills, the pure socialism of these bills, Marxism, American Marxism, it's a unique version. But probably the worst, and I say probably, I mean, but there's, they're voting, they're negotiating frameworks right now. These bills are probably, between the two of them, going to come in at about 3,000 pages. Nobody reads two or 3,000 pages before a vote. You just, it's impossible. They want to nationalize elections. If they nationalize these elections, Republicans will never hold the office of presidency, of president again. It's probably unlikely that they will ever hold a majority in either the House or the Senate. I personally, I don't think that it would be constitutional. I think... Um, It would be in a normal, in a legitimate court system. I think that part of the bill would be struck down as unconstitutional. But you, you just can't tell with these judges nowadays. I think it would have to go to the Supreme Court. But it's a crapshoot. It is an absolute crapshoot on any given case, primarily because of John Roberts. 
And, and think about that for a minute. The framers of the Constitution set it up just so. Article 2, I believe, I meant to bring a copy of it out of my bag in there, but I forgot about it. But when it sets forth elections and it delegates those powers to the states, the founders knew and, and had fresh in their minds that they were being ruled. They were subjugated. They were, they were individual subjects of the king. Once again, they were being ruled by somebody in a faraway land that did not know their way of life, did not know their culture, um, you know, we at the time we had 13 colonies, you had cities and towns within the colonies. You take a, a state like New York, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia, where you had towns all over each individual state that uh, may live differently than cities and towns in other parts of within their own state. So Madison and the framers wanted government, especially the federal government, to be as limited as possible, the state level, and then the local level. I know in Florida, there's been a lot of talk with DeSantis and the mask, the ban on mask mandates. And so now we've got Democrats saying uh, that it should be at the local level. Uh, he put a ban on sanctuary cities. Some wacko Haney Waste judge throws it out of court, says it's unconstitutional. By the way, in her uh, I don't, diarrhea, 100-page ruling, talked about the groups that were behind the, the bill or the executive order uh, were hateful. It's almost like she didn't even address the true constitutionality of the order. She, she chose to focus on the impetus of why the governor issued the order. So you take a state like Arizona 10 years ago that writes a nine page law 
simply uh, copying certain pieces of the federal code on immigration law. Didn't enhance it. Simply looked at the U.S. statutes in certain areas and pulled from it and made a nine-page law passed by both houses and signed into law. I believe it was uh, Jan Brewer was the governor. And it was funny because at the time you had a whole bunch of people boycott Arizona tea. Well, the dumbasses at the time didn't realize that Arizona tea was made somewhere up north, Pennsylvania, New York, somewhere like that. But they, they boycotted Arizona tea. Supreme Court ultimately threw it out uh, in another joke decision. But the bottom line is we're told on one hand that federal immigration is the purview of the federal government, the Congress, uh, certain aspects when it comes to national security. The president can do certain things. And then now we're told that immigration, things of that nature, uh, it's unconstitutional for the state to do anything. It's up to the local level. So it's, it totally contradicts itself between the many rulings that we've had over the years. Uh, Obama signs an executive order banning people coming from six or seven countries in the Middle East, literally within a year, maybe 14, 15 months, Trump basically signs the exact same executive order, the exact same six countries, eight countries, whatever it was, and it's thrown out of court. They, they uh, have an injunction. That particular judge said, used Trump's campaign rhetoric even before he was elected and inaugurated. That particular judge cited Trump's campaign rhetoric and the uh, emotion behind it, the intent behind it wasn't pure or whatever, so to speak. But once again, the judge makes a ruling, writes the opinion, and doesn't so much as follow the law as he looks at the individual and what they deem uh, is behind the decision of that individual. So there's no guarantee if these two pieces of legislation are passed, and when they make it, when the voting rights makes it to the Supreme Court, that it's going to be overturned or struck down, removed, ruled in constitutional, unconstitutional rather, etc. So you see where we're at. 
how did we get here? How did we get to this point? The last podcast, I just railed on Chris Christie, um, the milk toast Republicans, Romney, uh, GW, <coughs> McConnell, excuse me. This is how we are where we're at. So I wanted to spend a little bit more time discussing how how it is that we're 50-50 in the Senate. When you've got a state like Georgia that has two Democrat senators, you've got a state like Arizona, you had a state like Alabama that uh, up until this past cycle had a Democrat senator. Um, Arizona, you had you had John McCain pass away. I think there was another guy that either passed away or or uh, fell ill, outright resigned. And you notice McCain never stepped down. McCain, you know, he's got friggin' brain cancer, and rather than stepping aside and giving the governor the opportunity to appoint a senator, he just hangs on. Misses vote after vote after vote. I don't recall the specific votes that he missed, but I know there were some votes in there. There were some, some key legislation that possibly could have been passed had there been somebody there, one more senator to vote with the Republicans. But that tells you the type of man that John McCain became in the latter years of his life, which I will say, I've said on this podcast, and I will say it again, and I will believe it in my heart till the day I die. At some point, John McCain sold his soul for the same power, the same notoriety, that some of these prominent Democrats get. Now, the only difference is these Democrats are strongly ideological, staunch ideological senators and, and representatives. The biggest problem with McCain is that he wasn't ideological, i.e., he didn't have principles. Oh, he would tell you in the 08 campaign, we're going to run a nice clean campaign. We're not going to call the the, the uh, candidate by his own friggin' name. We're not going to use that. Not that, I mean, it's to me it was it wasn't a talking point per se. But I'm not going to make a big deal to come out and say, oh, we're not going to use his middle name because of the implication. We're going to run an honorable campaign. It's his effing 
name Barack Hussein Obama. You didn't name him John. His mama named him. What is the big deal? Richard Milhouse Nixon. President, I mean, a president's middle name is mentioned all the time when, when referring to uh, a president from history. William Jefferson Clinton. Clinton used his middle name back in 1992 saying his mother named him after Thomas Jefferson. Oh, and I feel your pain. Those types of Republicans are the very reason why we're here. Lindsey Graham, that's another one. That blankety-blank so-and-so. He's another one. They will... Br Joe Biden brutalized Robert Bork, brutalized Clarence Thomas, just Supreme Court, uh, appellate court, nominee after nominee after nominee, made it, turned the term Bork into an English word in the verb sense. He was borked. That's who Joe Biden is. Lindsey Graham and his ilk says, oh, well, he was elected president. He gets to appoint cabinet members and justices and judges as he see fit, sees fit. But see, Lindsey Graham forgot the rest of the clause in the Constitution that says, with the advice and consent of the Senate. But Lindsey Graham wants to be moderate. He, he's of that same milk. And it sickens me. Mitch McConnell is responsible for the two Georgia defeats. Now, was there shenanigans in Georgia? I believe there was. I don't have any doubt that there was. It should have never been that close. Arizona, Mitch McConnell, and not only Mitch McConnell, here's, here's another one of these a-holes that's behind the scenes. Who the F does Karl Rove think he is? Why is Karl Rove in American politics today? 
I want somebody to tell me, to make a case, to argue for the existence of Karl Rove and his hands into Republican Big R campaigns and politics. He has no business in the middle of Republican primaries determining Republican candidates. But guys like he, him, and Mitch McConnell, because they won't, uh, as Daniel Horowitz puts it, controlled opposition. Or as Rush used to put it, I need a star player for the Washington Generals. Because we're going to travel around the country and we're going to put on a good show. But the Globetrotters win at the end of the game. That's not who I want in Republican politics. I don't want Karl Rove. I don't want Mitch McConnell. I don't want Chris Christie. The person that I want, the candidate that I want, the new, fresh, up-and-coming candidate. I saw a movie one time. The manager of this particular guy says, Hey man, you need to pay attention to your opponent. Yeah, 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 I will in a minute. The manager looks at him, looks back at the opponent. Comes time for battle. The manager tells his man, he says, it's not a show to this guy. It's not a show. He's here to win. And he's not here to win. He's here to destroy you. You chose this guy to put on a show. You chose that guy because you thought he was easy prey. That movie, my father took me to see, I believe, in 1977. Rocky. Apollo went into that fight. It was a show. It was an easy title defense. And at the end of the day, Rocky gave him everything he, he could handle, and then some. And when the fight was over, what did he say? Not going to be a rematch. Don't want no rematch. Because he knew that he was in the ring with a fighter. A comeback kid.
That's a Republican candidate that I want. I want a fighter. I want somebody who stands up to the establishment that says, no, my people elected me. You didn't elect me. Keep your dirty money. I'll raise my own. Thank you very much. Speaking of Christie, he's teamed up with Pompeo, which is scary. I think Pompeo was a hell of a Secretary of State. The fact that he's teaming up with Christie, going in looking for primary candidates for next fall's uh, midterms scares the crap out of me. Because it tells me that Pompeo may not be the conservative that I thought he was. There's an old saying, when you dance with the devil, you don't change the devil. The devil changes you. And as a conservative, a true conservative, if you don't edify your conservatism, almost daily, you lose it. It's just like the Bible, Jesus. It's not that you don't believe. You just start slipping. Pence, he's gearing up for a run. Which I'll, I'll get to Pence in a later podcast. I think Pence in part is responsible for Trump's defeat. Um, but it looks like he's positioning himself for a 2024 run. I'm afraid that at this point, if this bill passes, it doesn't matter who runs in 2024. If this, if this bill with this voter overhaul goes into effect nationwide and they federalize elections, I, that fat lady sitting up there on the perch and she's saying me, 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 me tuning up those vocals because it may not matter who the candidate is
I don't think there's any doubt that there was election fraud. I think I may have covered it. And, you know, nothing conspiratorial per se. But if this bill passes with this election reform, This country is heading for the event horizon. And at some point, that stream is going to be moving faster than our ability to swim. And we're going to go over the edge. So... I hope it's not. I hope by some miracle that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema stand their ground or that the Republicans uh, can put enough heat on half a dozen or so members of the House. Because truly it is going to it'll it'll mirror the uh, 2012 or 2010 midterms. Obamacare passed, I think it was May. And they knew, their members knew that they were, they were going to lose at the election, at the ballot box. But they went ahead and, and went with party line votes and took their ass whipping at the ballot box. So it's just a matter of whether or not uh, this version of Democrats want to hold on to their seats or destroy the country to go along with the leadership. Anyway, I appreciate you hanging out, listening. I've been out of town, so it's been hard to put anything together. But uh, as always, I appreciate you guys listening. Like, subscribe, share. And thank you for joining us on The Forgotten Conservative.